Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. We're very excited to announce that we are changing our name to Wild Heart Meditation Center. You can stay subscribed to the podcast as you currently are, or if you choose to join us again at a later date in the future, just remember to search wherever you get your podcasts for Wild Heart Meditation Center. We're excited to be introducing new facilitators to our group and expanding our presence in our local community. Enjoy. All right, I'm getting over a bit of a cough that I've had for a couple of weeks, so try to project. Um, I've just been reflecting lately. I've uh, been giving a lot of Dharma talks on themes as they relate to mindfulness meditation as a practice. So I've been giving kind of a lot of technical talks for three months. I talked about the five hindrances, and that took me a couple months. And then I've been talking about the four foundations of mindfulness um, for the last couple months. And so I just want to kind of recenter myself. I hope you all don't mind and come back to this other aspect of uh, just sharing the Dharma through story, you know. And I'm interested to hear at the end y'all's experience with, if you're new, why why are you checking it out? What piques your interest in this practice? Maybe you've practiced before at other areas of your life, or there are other maybe Eastern types of spiritual practice that fascinate you, or maybe you've been coming for a while, right? And what keeps you coming, that kind of thing. So I wanted to share a little bit of my personal story. Um, I don't do this often, maybe once or twice a year. But I do feel like it's valuable. It's been one of the ways that I feel connected to the Buddha's teachings, one of the refuges that we dedicate ourselves to in the practice is the refuge of community. And so having a wise counsel is important, and sharing ourselves authentically with one another is an important part of learning how to overcome our personal suffering, right? Because for some reason, when we share our personal suffering, I feel like the power of it is lessened, you know, being able to connect with one another in ways that we personally suffer helps me to feel less alone, to be able to empathize. Um, So I wanted to share a little bit about just my story in general and then to hear from you all. Like most people, well, I shouldn't say most people, but like a lot of people, I didn't necessarily have anything unique about my childhood growing up. Uh, there were ups and downs, of course, but there was a lot of stability in ways. Um, I was able to go to school. You know, My family had resources to be able to take care of me. Um, so there wasn't anything like abnormal in that regard, being born into the world. I do feel like from a very young age I had kind of a little bit too much sensitivity to the big T truths of life. Like I kind of as a young person remember feeling very fragile, that the human life was vulnerable, (laughs) that it was big, right? And I remember even from a very young age like asking my mom about death and being really you know, fascinated by 
these parts of life. Because I didn't, as a little kid, of course, you don't hear people talk about those things. But part of me sensed that that was something that was true, that life was impermanent, <laughs> you know, that life changed. And so I remember from a really young age, and I, I do a lot of therapy work, and one of the modalities of therapy I do is called EMDR. And EMDR, they look at your past memories, and you look at really processing them with the therapist. And when I've done some of my own work, I look at all my memories, most of my memories, pre-10 years old are of me being completely alone. Right? And so a lot of my, whether it was true or not, a lot of what my brain remembers from being young was being alone. And the core kind of emotion or feeling from a young age was that the world is really big and I'm a really small part of it. <laughs> So I had a lot of fear, really, as a young kid. I remember my mom jokingly told me that when I was like seven, I asked her, she was writing someone a check, and I asked her, like, what are you doing? And she says, well, I gotta pay someone. I said, oh, you just signed something? And that person just gets it, and that's money? And she's like, yeah, that's what you do. I was like, I don't think I'll know how to do that. And she was balancing her checkbook. I was like, what are you writing in now? And she's like, oh, I'm, you know, back in the day, you had to balance your checkbook. And she's like, I'm having to keep track of all the people I pay. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. Right? So from a young age, I was asking really weird questions about responsibilities and just feeling unequipped. I think that, that was another theme. So alone in a lot of ways and unequipped in a lot of ways. I think I was a really sensitive kid, you know, which as a kid used to piss me off when people called me sensitive. I make a joke now that that's kind of the goal of this practice is to be more sensitive. You know, so it's funny how things can shift over time. So that was my experience, you know, as a young kid, probably a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of feeling like the world was a vulnerable place. And then I had a few experiences back to back uh, in life that kind of changed the trajectory of my life quite a bit. Um, they weren't any big traumas. They were just a lot of like, wounding experiences for me that I couldn't make sense of as a young person. And it happened kind of three back to back. The first one is my mom had an affair when I was like 13 and told me about it. And I didn't really understand what that meant. You know, I, and I felt, I remember feeling betrayed because I remember feeling because of that choice that our family was going to change, right? And so it's very confusing as a 13-year-old with a brain, you know, of a 13-year-old not fully developed. It just felt uh, very scary, and it felt uh, very unsafe because now my whole world was going to be changed some way. And so we moved from our house, and my mom and dad moved into separate houses. And around that time, I started going to a new school. Actually, like that next year, very, like rigorous school. I was used to just public school and now all of a sudden I was going to go to this private school. It's really hard. Um, and right away, I've always been a pretty extroverted person. My extroversion didn't pay out for me. <laughs> I started getting into a lot of arguments with the eighth graders. I was in, I think, seventh grade at this point. And if uh, for a lot of guys between 7th and 8th grade, that's the puberty zone. 
So eighth graders are fucking huge, and seventh graders are small, little, fragile kids. And uh, so I would get I would get in fights, a lot of verbal at first, a lot of arguments, and then I got in physical fights. I get beat up, I get pushed and kicked. They used to do this thing where they would open the double doors of the school in the eighth grade hallway, and they'd try to trap you behind the door and just kick you. Right? And so there's a lot of uh, feeling unsafe, you know, and, and, you know, the message, boys will be boys, is kind of what I got, and this is a part of growing up, because to an adult brain, that is something, I think, that's not unique, right? But it's something that uh, caused me a lot of pain. And so I remember going to the principal of the school and asking for help, and him saying, he actually invited the people that were beating me up into the room, and he um, he basically told me to stop going down the eighth grade hallway. He said, "I need you to start going downstairs when you want to go to the cafeteria instead of walking through their hallway." And so I learned to start to be defiant because in that I got this message that you can ask for help, but people probably aren't going to help you. So you got to start to do it yourself. So I kept going down the eighth grade hallway and I kept getting into fights. And I started this kind of like rebelliousness and this defiance uh, that served me well, right? And then uh, for that part of my life. And then uh, I started, uh, I got into the if you can't beat them, join them. And I started befriending the people that were the scariest. And uh, over the summer, I started smoking cigarettes, and I told them that I smoked weed, and uh, I started smoking weed with them. And within six months, I was using hard drugs, cocaine, and then um, after a few more months, I was using methamphetamine and crack cocaine. And was basically at that point, I decided that anything I could do to feel different was something that I could rely on. It was the one thing I'd found at that stage of my life that was reliable. Right? It made me feel good, or at least made me feel different. It made me feel connected to peers and other people. When I was high with other people, right, we were on the same page some of the time, a lot of the time. So I really took refuge in uh, drugs and alcohol, and I believe they saved my life. Um, I remember being so overwhelmed and paralyzed by depression at night, I would stay up till like 2 or 3 in the morning at like 13 and just not want to live and be laying in bed. I still remember like Howard Stern would come on, whatever we think about Howard Stern today, but at the time, you know, and I remember just watching these late night shows by myself, right, and just not wanting to live. And so I'm grateful for drugs and alcohol. I'm grateful for, you know, the ability to escape. And um, they took good care of me. And my friends took good care of me. I started getting involved a lot in music and playing music. Um, I grew up skating, so I listened to punk rock and hip-hop. And 90s hip-hop was a lot better than hip-hop these days, so I got really into hip-hop. And, uh, you know, and I started playing music with other people. And, um, and you know, I went, I, I really... Things got bad quick, I'll just say that. Things got bad really quick. Within a year, I got kicked out of several schools. 
Um, I got caught by my folks with thousands of dollars and selling drugs and I went to a rehab and I talked my way out of it. I went to another rehab and I talked my way out of it. And I got arrested in Chattanooga, Tennessee with uh, three felonies at 18 and my life changed dramatically right? because in that my opportunities and the privilege that I was born into was stripped away. And so I, um, I freaked out, you know, and I continued to use and I left home and I stayed with people and I still don't really can't quite make sense of those few months of my life. I ended up in rehab. Um, and I ended up in rehab and I started to feel like this was maybe a chance to get my life back on track and I should probably take it. I didn't really buy into wanting to be a person in recovery. I was still 18. Um, but I did believe that it was an opportunity to, you know, to get my life back on track and to not go to prison. So I took it. I moved to Nashville. And in Nashville, I started meeting people that were interested in something very different than I had ever experienced. When I entered into recovery, I started going to 12-step recovery meetings, and I started meeting some people in those rooms that were not interested in what I had to offer them and what I wanted out of them. What All they want, were interested in is how they could help me to not use drugs and alcohol. <laughs> Right, and there was this kind of this. There was an unconditional love aspect, and just not in all areas of life, but unconditional in just the sense of like, if you want to be in recovery, we're here for you. Right, and there's no, there's nothing tied to that. You don't got to be a certain way. You don't have to be older than you are, or stronger than you, or whatever. You just have to be you and want to be here, and we'll help you. Right? And so it was the first time really in, you know, not entirely in my life, but it was a really immersed experience of, of having that unconditional love. And there felt like there was something very valuable in that. Um, so I stuck around and I eventually got bitter and I drank and um, I relapsed off East Trinity 12 and a half years ago. So I went back out and there's a place called the Hallmark Inn. I think it's condemned now, but that was the last place I used off of East Trinity Lane. And uh, that night I saw someone get shot, and that night I spent all my money. I got kicked out of the sober living house. I had court in two weeks. And in one night, all of my life opportunities were gone. <laughs> and so what I did is I called someone in, in recovery, and I said, hey, this, like my parents won't talk to me. I don't have any money, I don't have anywhere to go, help. <laughs> and he said, all right, well, come over to my house, you can stay on my couch. He said, when I wake up in the morning and go to work, you have to leave. And he said, if you can stay clean that day, tomorrow, he said, I'll talk to you tomorrow night and I'll see if you can stay again. And so I did that for two weeks. I just would stay at his house, he'd only let me over at like nine or 10 at night when he got out of work, and he'd let me sleep on his couch, off Kirkland Avenue and he let me sleep on his couch and then he would kick me out in the morning and I would call him at night and he would ask me if I was clean and if I was he would consider letting me stay there again. 
And so I really learned another thing here. I, so I learned unconditional love, but I also learned that when I was honest, you know, when I acted in integrity, if I focus on just like a simple thing, one thing at a time, right, that those one things stack up. And this is, of course, you know, in, in Buddhism, we talk about karma. And sometimes karma seems like this like metaphysical, you know, other life type of experience. I don't know if anyone's ever seen My Name is Earl, but it's not that type of karma, right? It's not uh, metaphysical. Karma just means action. So I learned that like when I could just act in a simple way one day at a time, I got simple results. If I did things I felt good about, right, if I did things that had integrity to them, then uh, you know, I was able to, there was some protection in integrity. And this is what we talk about in the Dharma around the precepts or training. They call it sila, the precepts. To take the precept to not harm, right? to vow, to train, to not take what's not freely offered from us, to be wise and careful with our sexual energy, to not be harsh, divisive, manipulative with our speech, right? to be able to uh, be careful about what we consume, because how we consume and what we take in affects how we act. And so I learned really early on through recovery how to really practice sila. And I ended up getting into another sober living house. And a day at a time, I started to rack up a little bit of clarity. The fog started to lift. Um, and, I, and this really sustained me for years. And this is the Buddha's first teaching. When, you, when people would go up to the Buddha and they'd say, hey, you seem like a pretty woke guy. What do I do? Right? I'm interested in this practice. This seems pretty cool to me. He would say, hey, be of service to other people and practice the training precepts. Bring mindfulness, not as a sitting meditation practice, but bring mindfulness to your behavior. The ways that you speak and act in the world, what you do in your work life, livelihood. These are all parts of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, speech, action, and livelihood. And they're the foundation. And this is really, this was my experience with being in recovery. And this was my first awakening. And when I mean awakening, I don't mean, you know, aha moment, transcendent awakening, realization. I mean, we all have moments of awakening, right? We all have awakening experiences. We all have clarity in our lives. And so this was where a lot of my first aspects of clarity came in was just living in a way that I felt good about. I share a lot in here that, from a Buddhist perspective, happiness is a collection of good habits. It's not a place. There's no place that's happy. I don't know if you've seen this, but we're going to age, we're going to get sick, we're going to die. That's where we're headed. right? Happiness, <laughs> happiness is dependent upon what we do. You know, and, and being able to relate to our life. So happiness is not the conditions we find ourselves in either. And this is a really radical part of wise view. And it's not something we, we can intellectually talk about it right now, but it's something we've got to practice over and over and over and go home and think about it to yourself. It's not something to believe. But part of wise view is that our happiness does not actually depend on the conditions of your life right now. Your happiness depends on how you relate to the conditions of your life. Right? And so 
that's a lot of what I started to learn. I didn't know I was learning that. I just was trying to not smoke crack and go to prison, <laughs> right? But that's a lot of what I learned early on in recovery is that when I did things that I felt good about, when I lived with integrity, I started to feel good about myself. You know, I started to find well-being. I started to find meaning and to connect with that. And so for several years, you know, that's basically what I did is I just stayed clean. I went to meetings. I practiced trying to look at myself uh, with more frequency. And then I continued to be riddled with anxiety and depression. Right? Long story short, my emotional life continued to overwhelm me. Um, and this was the hardest I think this was one of the hardest times in my entire life. Through all I'd been through before was being clean, living in my integrity, and still being miserable. And so I couldn't put it together. I was like, I'm actually doing everything right. I'm being honest. I'm not trying to be manipulative. I'm not stealing from people. I'm being like, I'm sharing with others. I'm doing everything, but I'm still miserable. And I couldn't figure it out. And I was open to do anything. And I remember what, what I did is I called my friend Dave Smith. Dave Smith started Against the Stream Nashville like eight or nine, eight or nine years ago. And I called him. And I knew Dave Smith because he was in recovery. He played music. I played music. Uh, we had a lot kind of mutual friends in common. I knew he meditated and was into Buddhism. I'd always been interested but I didn't really understand. I just thought Buddhism was like a way of life. I didn't understand that there were like practices to it. Um, I thought just like Christians, Buddhists probably you know, have devotion to the Buddha. And it's probably similar in a lot of ways. It's just a way of life. But I called him and I said, hey, you meditate, right? And he said, yeah, I meditate. I said, well, will you come to my work? I had run a little business with a friend. I said, will you come to my work and meditate with me and my friend? And he was like, no, that's weird. <laughs> he was like, no, that's kind of weird, he said. But how about you come to this meditation group that I run? And at, at the time, <laughs> I don't even think it was yet called Against the Stream. It was just Sunday nights tonight. This is the original uh, group that we had that we started with. Uh, he said, just come on Sunday night at 7 and, and you can meditate there. It's free. And so I showed up. And I remember the first time that I meditated, a couple things, and it's not all clear, but a couple things are clear. One is that I could not believe that I was about to meditate for 25 or 30 minutes. Right? And part of the reason why I was coming was just because I didn't believe I could do it. And if I did it, I could tell other people that I did it. Right? Like, I could not believe that people were willingly showing up and, like, getting something out of it. So that was part of it. I was really interested in that idea. Is like, why don't I want to sit with myself? And how hard it is to sit with myself? And could I even do it? And then I remember, I do remember this. I remember I would close my eyes because I had this idea, I had a couple ideas, this tells you a little bit about my personality. I first, I thought that I had to sit on the floor because if you're going to really meditate right, you couldn't sit in a chair. And there are people in a chair, the meditation center, but I had to sit on the floor. So I sat on the floor and I crossed my legs like this. I never sat like this in my life. 
It's very painful to sit like this if you have never sat like this in your life. And I sat down on the floor, and I also thought you had to close your eyes. So I closed my eyes, and I had such intense anxiety during the meditation. I thought that someone was going to come up and crack me over the head with a baseball bat when my eyes were closed. I felt so unsafe with my eyes closed in a room full of other people. Right? And so the, this was kind of my first experience with meditation. I say that because, one, it's true. I don't know why I came back after those first couple times, but I did. I think it was mostly the Dharma talk afterwards. You know, I, they say sometimes people enter the Dharma through the heart gate, and sometimes people enter the Dharma through the wisdom gate. Right? Sometimes it's the emotional pull or the emotional space of mindfulness that uh, you know, shows up for us. I definitely was more interested in what the Buddha had to say. Right? That stuff made sense to me. And I felt like for the first time, this was a spiritual practice where I wasn't being asked to believe anything. And this was profound for me. I remember sitting in the room and my teacher sitting up there and talking. And I never once heard him say, this is what we believe. You know, what he said was, what do you experience? You know, what is it like to be a human? Have you noticed that it's hard? <laughs> Have you noticed that your mind is all over the place? Do you notice that your mind is not a friendly companion all of the time? And I was able to say, yeah, I noticed that. That's definitely true for me. And so there was something there in just being invited to, as the Buddha says, ehi pasiko, to see for yourself. The Buddha didn't even want to teach after his awakening. That's what the myth says, that after the Buddha's awakening, he contemplated, he said, no one's going to want to do this. No one's going to want to sit quietly in a room by themselves with their eyes closed. It's a hard thing to get behind. He said, but there are those with little dust in their eyes. There are those that are kind of, have maybe seen or tasted awakening of their own in their lives. They've had moments of awakening or clarity in their lives. And maybe when there's that enthusiasm for awakening, they'll sit down and they'll be willing to look at their mind. Joseph Goldstein's teacher, Manindraji, says, if you want to understand your mind, you have to sit down and watch it. That's all we're trying to do is to understand the mind. And so I kept coming. The other thing that was very important for me is I was given this simple instruction. When your mind wanders, notice. That's okay. And then bring your attention back to your breath. And I noticed that for the first time, I think in my life, that I could ignore my mind. That I could tell my mind for a second, just for a second, not right now and focus on something else. Right? And that, for some reason, that was like profound to me. I thought that for my whole life I was my mind. And I don't know about you, but my mind was not a friendly companion, so I thought I was a pretty miserable person because my mind was miserable. But I learned that I'm not my mind. My mind is just the mind. What does the mind do? Well, neuroscientists say the mind solves problems, so what does it look at? All your problems. The mind also is an emotion mind. You have a whole mind. Your limbic system is all emotion. So it's anxious. It's fearful. It's angry. It's sad. 
It's all of those things. So the mind is complex and the mind is not self. It's not ultimately who we are. I don't know about you, but you wake up in the morning, you're in a bad mood. Are you your bad mood? Maybe for a little bit until the mood changes. And then we're the happy mood or the okay mood. And then that changes and we're the bad mood again. So which one are we? Are we the bad mood or the good mood? It's just the mind. That's what the mind does is it follows moods. So what do we do? Well, you can't get rid of it. That's unfortunate. This isn't that type of meditation. We're not clearing the mind. We're not getting rid of the mind here. We're bringing awareness to the mind. Because when there's awareness, there's power in knowing and seeing. Seeing the mind is not a who I am, ultimately. It's a part of me. It's a part of what I'm experiencing, for sure. But being able to see the mind just as the mind, that was one of the most profound insights I had early on in meditation. Sometimes in secular practice, I'm a pretty simple person, so I like to overcomplicate things and think I'm smart, but I'm really not. I like things kind of really simple. One of the ways I like to teach this, I just call it observer mind. So in the beginning, a good concept for me how to think about this was, I'm not my mind, I'm the one who can know the mind. Eventually, you go on and you say, well, you're not even the one that's knowing the mind. That's just knowing. We call that awareness. So who are we? Where are we? Where are we in here? Can you point to any part of yourself that's you inherently, that's always been the same? Who we are is we're a person that's constantly changing. So this doesn't mean that we're not a self. It means that the self we are is constantly changing. The self is dynamic. The self is thoughts and emotions. The thought, the, sorry, the self is the body that's changing. So this was, I got a little bit of a taste of this when I started to be able to just watch and see my mind. And, you know, maybe a little bit about, it tells a little bit about my personality, but I was, uh, I bought in right away. And it doesn't happen as often, I think, for other people. I don't think I'm unique. I just think for whatever reason, I was ready to hear the Dharma. I was ready to practice. Um, and so I kept coming every, every single Sunday at the time. Eventually, Dave started a Wednesday group. I would come on Wednesday and Sunday every single time. Dave, uh, after a couple years, I did a year training program with him. I would ask him questions after the group. I would ask him what books he read, what teachers he liked to listen to. I'd go home, I'd go listen to them. And I'd, go at, and I'd come back and I'd ask him about something they said. I was very, for some reason, I was really ready to practice. And I uh, dove right in. I started sitting meditation retreats. After a year and a half of practice, I went on a seven-day silent retreat. Um, some of the most profound insights I've had during meditation were on that first retreat. There's something about the more expert we think we are, the harder it is. <laughs> right? And so I had a lot of profound change. And in Buddhism, an interesting thing is that disturbance is not an obstacle to the path. It is the path. So with awareness, with all this awareness we're cultivating, all this awareness we're planting and watering and tending to with mindfulness, every moment trying to wake up and be aware. What is it like? How is it? What is it like? How is it? How is it now? What is it like now? That means that we're waking up to 
this reality that the present is not always pleasant, that the present is riddled with anxiety and neurotic obsession and all of the if-onlys, if only I had this, if only I had that, or the I'd rather be's, I call it. I'd rather be somewhere else with someone else doing something else. The mind's riddled with craving and clinging, with resistance. In Buddhism, they kind of just simplify it. They say greed, hatred, and delusion. I don't like to think my mind has greed, hatred, and delusion in it, but when I really look at it, it does. Because <laughs> if greed, hatred, and delusion are in the world, they're in my mind. Right? There's, I don't think there's... You know, I think the world magnifies our personal suffering. And so the suffering that's in the world is in my mind. So I started to uh, really take to practice and sit retreats and start to really dive in. And I started to come up against a lot of shit. You know, we call this dukkha. Dukkha is the Buddha's first teaching. That inherent in life is difficulty. That being human is inherently vulnerable. The, front, or the Latin etymology of the word vulnerability means, vulnere means susceptibility to woundedness. And so this connected to something very deep in me. I didn't maybe put it together or whatever, but I think I've known this since a young age, right? This was that reality that life is fragile. Life is groundless. Where are we going? And it's not to be a morbid reflection. This was, I still have to tackle this in my mind. Buddhism is not nihilism. It's not saying, oh, you're going to die one day, so what's the point? It's saying the exact opposite. It's saying, hey, you're going to die one day, so what's the point? Right? What are you doing? <laughs> what are we doing here? You know, and, and when there's that awareness, there's, there's urgency. And when there's urgency, we meet more moments with compassion instead of hatred. You know, we meet more of these minor irritants with acceptance instead of resistance. We're able to let things come and go a little bit better when there's that acknowledgement. And so, you know, I, I, through practice, I deepen my intimacy with my disturbances. And I've been able to see that it's by knowing how I suffer that I can understand the causes of the suffering. And by knowing the causes of the suffering, really knowing, in West, Western world we say knowing here. We call this the mind. In, in uh, Eastern worlds, the, this word chitta in Pali Sanskrit, to know comes from here. Right? The heart center. This word chitta means heart and mind. And if you ask a Buddhist monk, a Burmese monk, to point to his heart or to his mind, he'll point right here to his heart. Because you know, we need to know our suffering we need to feel it. We need to be with it. We need to understand it. We need to be patient with it. Because if, if we know the ways that we suffer, right, we'll stop perpetuating it if we really know. That's a, I mean, it's, again, maybe something not to believe in. Just think. Like, if I truly know the ways that I suffer and perpetuate, keep suffering, if I see it as suffering instead of what I usually see it as, which is comfort or just healthy distraction or whatever it may be, if I see it as suffering, if I know the cause of it, then I can know its release. 
And so I, you know, I wanted to, and I, I want to share about my experience with the Dharma because it's been all over the place. Like the Dharma is not a thing. The Dharma is a collection of good habits. It's practices. It's wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. It's wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. You know, it's learning how to be skillful with our view and intention, to be skillful in our communication. And this isn't a commandment. There's no right or wrong. Bad news, really. I mean, I used to think this was good news. Sometimes I beg for someone to just tell me, tell me what I should do. You ever find yourself asking someone that? Well, tell me what I should do. Really, a helpful friend's going to say, dude, I don't know what you should do. What do you think you should do? When you really contemplate what you should do, what does that feel like? Is there doubt there or fear there? What do you come up against when you really bring awareness to that? This is view and intention. How are you talking? Are you speaking divisively? How does gossip create, uh, you know, how does gossiping or talking shit about each other or being manipulative, how does that create paranoia and insecurity in our lives? You know, we create our environments through our actions. It's a really wild concept, again, not to believe in. I don't know if I even fully believe in it, as I say it. I've got to think about it. But I think we create a lot of our environments, at least, let's say that, through how we act. We're swimming in a pool of our past karma. And so we want to be really careful about you know, the ways that we practice, the ways that we move in the world, the movements that we... And, and the Buddha said, this is what's so genius about the Buddha's teaching, I think, is he says, okay, start with your speech and action. Start with your behavior Start with how you speak. Start with your work. Start there. He said, but then you've got to look into your mind because this is also a behavior. He said, and you're swimming in a pool of your thought karma. You're creating your own mental environment. Your mind, every moment a thought enters the mind and you pick up the thought and you think the thought. The Buddha says, whatever you ponder and frequently think about becomes the inclination of your mind. It's going to go there more often. It's going to go there more often. So when I tell myself it's hopeless, you're worthless, you're not valuable, you're never going to get it, you're stuck, you're whatever, it doesn't mean that we think positively. It means we look at that part of the mind and we say, oh, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. So we're not doing positive thinking here. We're just relating to the mind and we're saying, I'm so sorry. I have awareness of that. You know, and you don't have to do that. And then it's going to do that anyway. And we <laughs> patience and got to practice. They call patience one of the ten perfections in Buddhism. Last thing I want to share about is difficulty on the path. You know, for people that maybe been coming for a while, you know, our connection with what we're doing here changes over time. I just recently, like to update my story, 
I just recently went to Burma and I practiced Myanmar. I went to Myanmar and I practiced for a month at a monastery and did retreat practice. I came back and the center here kind of started to unravel. We had a lot of the leadership team uh, fell apart and the people that I was leaning on for support. We had a refuge recovery conference here at the beginning of the year, and a lot of people took really good care of that. We had just moved in here in October, and so I started to really come back to the world with a lot of effort. And so I really got in there, and I really pushed, and my career started picking up, and I bought a house and was remodeling my house with a friend, and you know, and I got married, and we're looking at having kids, and we're trying to have kids, and that's something we don't talk about, right? The human body and uh, you know, how hard it is, how, how many people want to have kids, how many people don't want to have kids, right? What, what the body does in that experience. Working with my wife and trying to communicate around this new area of life. And so I found myself recently, without even knowing it, just losing uh, steam but feeling like I was treading water. And so I'm really good at doing. I just kept kicking my legs. I have you know, really strong effort legs. I can really go and go and go and go, right? But I, you know, my heart or my intention, like why I'm doing what I'm doing, started to kind of escape me. And in, in therapy, they have just a very simple way of putting this. They call it compassion fatigue, right? Or burnout. And so I started to get burnout. And, um, you know, and sometimes we just do. Sometimes there can be stigma around burning out, like it's your fault. Yeah, in a perfect world, I would be in perfect balance and, you know, be able to manage that so that wouldn't happen. And I hope, I aspire for that. I still aspire for that. But I got burnt out, you know, and my practice dwindled. Still meditating. I teach meditation for a living, too. I don't talk about this often. I teach like 15 to 20 groups a week of doing this. It's really hard to stay inspired and connected to our intention behind something when we're doing it that frequently. And in some ways, it's really easy. It's weird. Sometimes I'm very connected because I keep doing it over and over again. And sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I don't even know if I like the Dharma anymore. I don't even know if the Buddha was right about any of this shit. <laughs> you know, we have moments like that. Like that's, and, that, and, and what we do in practice is we just note that is doubt. It's just doubt in the mind. And it's okay for doubt to be present. We don't have to give it all of its story, right? But we don't have to take all of its story away either. We can just see it and say, oh, there's a little bit of doubt in the mind. There's a little bit of fatigue and exhaustion in the mind. I wonder how long this is going to last. But we've got to keep showing up for ourselves. It, it doesn't matter if you show up here or if you show up in a particular form. But this is what's the hardest thing. I think when I meet with people in my therapy practice or other people in recovery or that I know about myself is the hardest thing to do consistently time and time again is to show up. I read this quote at the day retreat yesterday. Maya Angelou says that courage is the most of all the virtues because without courage you can't do anything consistently. Right, so having the courage to just keep going. 
and having the forgiveness to you know, let go of the hope for a better past, to be able to acknowledge that the past is literally gone. It's literally never going to come back. The only thing you have connected to the past is how you think about it. And it's hard to let go of our resentments and it's hard to let go of grief. I'm not saying just know that and do it. I'm saying we got to practice. Let go of the moments when we make mistakes. Get back on the path. Two most important principles in my life have been patience and humility. We have to be able to admit to ourselves that we aren't awake beings. You know, this is where corruption, this is where power corrupts. Is that people in positions sitting on stages and telling people what to do and holding space for others don't understand the power that's there, right? And so we have to be humble about our uh, flaws and to know we have them. And all of us, right? Because we're all leaders in areas of our lives, with our families, in our work, relationships, with our partners at times. So we just have to have that courage, humility, patience. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that there's a Buddhist scholar named Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a Buddhist monk, and he says that. He says, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to f- blossom forth when there's steady and persistent practice. He said, there's only two requisites for practice, to start and to continue. So I'm interested to hear where you guys are at, if you want to share. You know, how are things for you in your life? Where's your practice? And even by practice, I mean being human. How is it practicing being human? Um, So we have plenty of.